Welcome back to The Jacobin Show. Saw young Kale for a minute, was not expecting to see him here. Always happy when he joins us, but it's me, Jen Pan, and Paul Prescott. Paul, what's going on? Not much. I think we should um, maybe warn our listeners that we will not be talking about AOC's dress today. Um, (laughs) It's true. We will be talking about representation of different sorts, but uh, it's true. The dress discourse we've decided to shunt aside for the time being. Yeah. Um, we do have a great show, though. We're going to have Eileen Jones, who, of course, is Jacobin's film critic, coming on a little later. Uh, this is basically the big movie episode. That's right. And, you know, I'm not I'm not good with cultural politics usually. You know, I usually joke my politics boils down to uh, high-wage good, low-wage bad. Um, but, yeah, I'm excited to <laughs> talk actually, about movies. But actually, Paul, what you're going to talk about does That's have tr- something to do with that. That so is true. You're that not completely true. out of your wheelhouse here. <laughs> But it is true, Paul is usually focused primarily on the base. Today, he's going to be talking about superstructure. Right. Can't wait. Um, So like I said, today is the big movie episode. I actually want to point out, uh, I I just learned that today is South Korean director Bong Joon-ho's birthday. So happy birthday. He's the director, of course, most recently and famously of Parasite, but also the movie Snowpiercer and The Host and several others. Um, I think that Parasite is uh, one of the greatest movies in the last maybe five years about uh, capitalism. So happy birthday. Hopefully he's listening. Probably right. Oh, please listen. Yeah, I know that he's a regular watcher of the show, of course. So happy birthday. (laughs) All right. um, So I I guess, you know, let's just dive into what we're going to say about movies. Paul is going to be talking about uh, The Killing Floor, which is a really great movie that I actually just watched last night in, in preparation for our dialogue. Um, so I'm excited to talk about that. Um, but I think first I'll just kick off with a few comments about, uh, liberalism and movies. So why do liberals seem to lose their minds when it comes to pop culture? You might remember the media buzz a few years ago around the release of the movie Crazy Rich Asians. As the first major Hollywood movie in more than two decades to feature an all Asian cast, Crazy Rich Asians naturally attracted a whirlwind of effusive praise from the type of commentator that believes that, quote, seeing oneself, that is, seeing characters of one's race, represented in pop culture is some kind of pinnacle of racial justice. It's not a movie, it's a movement, director John Chu declared of his film. In the lead-up to the movie's release, the New York Times reported that Asian Americans in various creative and white-collar fields had launched a campaign to flex the power of the Asian American dollar by buying out theaters during the movie's opening weekend. One LA-based comedian tweeted an especially insane and condescending offer. Hello, if you cannot afford to see Crazy Rich Asians opening weekend because you are actually a very poor Asian, DM me a picture of your ticket receipt and I will Venmo you the cost of the ticket, he wrote. Much like Hillary Clinton fans who bawled at the sight of Amazon's at war in Wonder Woman, plenty of Asian Americans in the media confessed to crying during Crazy Rich Asians, some from, quote, just seeing Asians on the screen. Most of the fawning reviews of the movie went like this. Crazy Rich Asians is a resounding, unimpeachable victory for representation in Hollywood, one that will hopefully usher in an era of films by non-white filmmakers that tell the stories of non-white people. That was in Quartz. Business Insider wrote, 
It's a necessary push for inclusivity in the film industry. Like February's Black Panther, it makes a lot of people who have largely been ignored feel seen. Vox wrote, Perhaps a more appropriate, if prohibitively lengthy, title would be The Best Movie About Asian People in Decades and the Best Rom-Com of the Summer. Now, at the same time, there were, of course, critics who had reservations about the movie's politics. I'm worried that America will get used to the representation of Asians as well-to-do, something that feels dangerously close to the myth that Asians are the model minority, wrote a contributor to Wired, as if any human adult aware of the movie's title would have trouble figuring out which class it sought to depict. Other critical reviews claimed that the movie, quote, embraced a message of white Asian equivalence or indulged in, quote, anti-Black appropriation. Both the breathless praise of the movie's supposedly groundbreaking qualities and the condemnations of its failure to advance adequately progressive politics were just flip sides of a hollow mode of criticism where cultural works are either lauded for how progressive they are or chastised for how reactionary they are. In recent years, this type of response to pop culture has gained widespread traction among liberals. In a 2018 article for New York Magazine, the journalist Molly Fisher dubbed this turn pop culture's great awakening and wrote, Quote, paying attention to the politics of pop culture aligns with a broader interest in ethical consumption of sweatshop-free t-shirts of free-range eggs. Accordingly, some portion of woke criticism falls into the category of consumer advisory. This is how you get articles like 13 Ways Stranger Things Season 2 Send Oppressive Generals Back to the Upside Down, and also critics arguing that a computer-animated taco shell voiced by Salma Hayek represents, quote, a massive contribution to the normalization of queer female characters on screen. It's also how you get a critic in the New York Times arguing last week that the new Marvel movie, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which stars an Asian-American superhero, quote, can mean the difference between life and death for Asian-Americans because, quote, when people see us as heroes, they're forced to see us as humans. But the truth is that neither the production nor the consumption of pop culture is an effective form of politics. Fundamentally, the desire to turn Hollywood movies and other forms of pop culture into sites of political activity stems from an idealist understanding of society or the belief that ideas and culture constitute the engine of social change. To put it a bit crudely, the notion here is that if we can just make more progressive movies that include diverse casts and contain the right moral lessons, we can slowly change the hearts and minds of the retrograde American public, which by extension will lead to an overhaul of our political and social order. Now, I think that people gravitating to this idea is in some ways understandable. After all, the rise of extreme economic and political inequality, the ongoing decline of unions and social institutions, and the erosion of democracy through voting restrictions, big money in politics, and the very existence of the Senate— means that unless you happen to be quite rich, you probably don't have much influence over policymaking today. In the face of that increasing disconnect from political institutions or any kind of real collective power, it makes sense that some people might seize upon the few areas where they still have control, such as what kinds of movies, books, and music they consume, if they care about making a difference. And yes, works of art, literature, and even mass entertainment can spark or amplify public interest in social inequalities. To cite two extremely well-known examples, Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel Uncle Tom's Cabin is often credited with igniting anti-slavery sentiment in the U.S. and even, according to some accounts, indirectly sparking the Civil War. Likewise, Upton Sinclair's book The Jungle 
famously drew attention to the brutal and unsanitary working conditions in the meatpacking industry at the turn of the century and caused an enormous outcry among the public. That said, it's important to note that neither Stowe's nor Sinclair's books themselves catalyzed political change or led to the creation of new movements. Rather, both novels came out of political movements that were already underway, the abolitionist movement in the case of Stowe and the socialist movement of the early 20th century in the case of Sinclair. So in other words, cultural production can only ever complement, not stand in for, the work of politics. As our society is increasingly atomized under capitalism, this often gets lost in liberal commentators' demands for more, quote, representation and or progressive messages in mainstream movies, such as this gem from Vice a few years ago titled Why Ant-Man Should Have Been Black, where the author argues, quote, in the movie, the guy who becomes Ant-Man is a recently released prisoner in a nation that disproportionately imprisons non-white people If Ant-Man is going to be an ex-con, he's twice as statistically likely to be Black or Hispanic as he is to be white. The fact remains that race is central to the institution of prison in this country, and one way or another, the filmmakers need to deal with that. Well, should we care that Ant-Man was white? Would the movie have been more progressive if Ant-Man had been Black? I would argue that it hardly matters. In the words of the one and only Adolf Reed, Nothing could indicate more strikingly the extent of neoliberal ideological hegemony than the idea that the mass culture industry and its representational practices constitute a meaningful terrain for struggle to advance egalitarian interests. So, Paul, uh, any thoughts on Ant-Man and his race? Um, not yet. I'm going to file that away with AOC's threat. I'm, I'm trying to get the right take <laughs> on it. I have a book coming out soon on, mm-hmm. on it. Um, but actually, my first question was, actually, was Crazy Rich Asians a good movie? Like, polit- politically aside, I'd, I've never seen it. No, it's awful. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. I suspected it, have... but yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm glad that you've spared yourself thus far. Uh, but, but that's why that one quote that I pulled that said something like, this is the best movie about Asian people in decades is just mind-blowing to say the right. least. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the, I think that what I really wanted to get at is, um, you know, I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't talk about art or that it's not important right. to talk about art. Actually, um, you know, I think I and probably most people who aren't you talk about art more than we talk about labor organizing, right? Um, and and I think that art, uh, you know, gives a lot of meaning to our lives. Uh, it's it it is really important to talk about and to to watch and um, to criticize. And uh, art can be political, but that said, art is not a site of political struggle. Right. At least I don't think so. And I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts because I know that this is an ongoing debate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, the really important point is that like, I definitely feel that art can be an expression of political struggle, struggle. It can help amplify it, but like, I don't see it. I'm sorry, being the catalyst of political struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think that example of the jungle by Upton Sinclair, I mean, that's very fitting given what I'm going to talk about, but it's like, you know, look, you know, he was exposing these conditions to middle class people, essentially. And that's yeah. and that's definitely a good thing to do. But, you know, the workers who would be responsible for changing those conditions and and, you know, eventually did change these conditions. You know, they already knew, of course, that was going on, that they were experiencing. So it's not like the workers read the jungle and then were like, wow, we need to do something. I mean, they were seeing it <laughs> right. and they were living it. Um, so, yeah, I just think people should not get these things confused and like i'm speaking as someone that i'm a huge lover of music you know in my past life i wanted to be a musician i 
I believe Paul, music. Paul, I did not know this. Yes, Go something on. did not know about Paul. Um, you know, I think music is incredibly powerful force in people's yes. lives. But like, I mean, me listening to an album, I'm sorry, is not political. Whether I'm listening to someone saying reactionary lyrics or progressive lyrics, like that's not political. Again, I think it can have a powerful force of amplifying. I mean, I, I think about like uh, Nina Simone's Mississippi Goddamn, you know, mm-hmm. after four black girls were killed in a bombing by the KKK. Yeah. You know, like the civil rights movement was already underway. You know, it's yeah, not exactly. like people needed that song to galvanize them. I think it was a powerful reflection of what was going on, you know, in, in different ways. But I think it's it's usually going to happen that artists generally do not start out politicized. Like they're going to respond to the environment around them. I don't think it's mm-hmm. the other way around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to uh, follow up on that. I mean, the reason why I brought up The Jungle and also Uncle Tom's Cabin, I know, I know um, a little bit less about Uncle Tom's Cabin, but again, the abolitionist movement was already in full swing by the time that novel came out. Harriet Beecher Stowe was embedded or, you know, worked within the abolitionist movement. Um, I believe an abolitionist newspaper commissioned that uh, story from her, and then it was later turned into a novel. Uh, And a similar sort of thing happened with The Jungle, right? Uh, Upton Sinclair wrote, it was a socialist. He wrote for a socialist newspaper, which already, you know, was kind of, again, in full swing because workers had been organizing, socialists had been organizing. The socialist paper commissioned Upton Sinclair to write the, to basically infiltrate the meatpacking industry, uh, report back and write this novel. He did that. um, And, you know, your point about the the jungle being shocking to middle class audiences, um, but obviously not news to the, work of the workers themselves, is particularly true in the case of the jungle, because um, in case anybody doesn't know, it led to a public outcry, but not really because of the bad working conditions. It was more just like the meat we're eating is dirty. Right. Or I mean, that was the takeaway, you know, for a lot of the middle class audience. And you know, that outcry sort of then led to um, Congress passing the Meat Inspection Act, which was like a form of oversight to make sure that, you know, conditions in the meatpacking warehouses were a little bit, you know, a little bit more sanitary. Um, But again, it was about like consumption of meat more so than it was about the workers. And Upton Sinclair himself, after the book, you know, after this kind of public outcry happened, was upset. Like he was like, I wanted to expose the plight of the workers to the middle class and they just care about the meat. So again, even, even sometimes with the, you know, most noble of intentions, like, you don't know how a work of art is going to be received. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think this really speaks to just a broader issue of a, the victory of neoliberalism and postmodernism. I think this like continued confusion of art and reality. And I think, especially for, I'll just say for my generation, I mean, like we were kind of like raised on movies, you know, and I think like totally just like pop culture fied in every single Mm -hmm. way. And so like Mm -hmm. people really are looking at, the representation of a movie as like that is the, the most meaningful thing in my life instead of like my real life and what's what's going on in that and you know it, it's kind of like a very lazy way to feel like you're doing something by i'm watching a progressive movie or whatever and i always think about you know on netflix now they have the black lives matter collection and it's pretty comical because right, like yeah essentially what it is is just like any movie with like more than three black people in it i'm sorry they just like i just, wa- just want to say uh hbo rolled out a like stop asian hate vertical during that whole thing and it was like it was like parasite aquaman with jason momoa like <laughs> I, I don't know yeah, yeah, yeah. and but, funny but, enough there's a and that's actually a pretty interesting documentary a four-part documentary on robert f kennedy 
but that I found in the Black Lives Matter collection. I was a little bit confused about. Um, <laughs> he was he would have been the first black president. Um, yeah, apparently. <laughs> right, right. If if historical circumstances had been different. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, on the subject of representation, I am curious to get your thoughts on this idea that we need to quote see ourselves in the movies, right? I I mean, I'm sure that it came across in, you know, what I just said, that I am extremely skeptical of that idea. I don't find it convincing at all. I think it's really weird and condescending and sort of um, implicitly uh, seems to suggest that, like, white people can't relate to characters of color, right? Yeah, you know, and it's like, it's one of these things that's like, yes, to a degree, but like, there's limits, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. for example, you know, I totally understand if you're a black person in the 1950s and you're watching all these shows and it's just like, okay, there's literally no black people on TV. What does that say? Yeah. Like that's going to have an effect on you. That's wrong. I mean, that just Mm -hmm. shows you something about the society. Um, But again, it's like, if there's a choice between more black entertainers or the civil rights act, I mean, I know which one I'm, I'm going to choose. Um, more, more black entertainers. Yeah, of course. that's of course <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, so it's like yes, it's true, but it's like okay, like let's just be aware of the limits of yeah. that, you know. And and I think it's like okay, there's one one victory of neoliberalism is uh, yeah, like we're increasingly seeing this. Like I mean, on commercials, on movies, like you're increasingly seeing diversity. That's good. I'm not. That's not something to be mad about. But like, it doesn't mm-hmm. address fundamental inequalities, whether those are racial or economic or gender or whatever. I also feel like with a lot of the contemporary dialogue around like, oh, we need to increase representation. There seems to be a lot of uh, like selective memory or like, I, I sometimes feel like people acted like there were no movies with people of color in them before like 2019 or something like, you know, like all of this dialogue around like black Panther, like the first black superhero. It's like, wait a minute, like black people have been in movies for like kind of a while and like Asian Americans as well. Like that was one of the things that I found really frustrating about all of the dialogue around crazy rich Asians. Like this is so brown groundbreaking. Like Asians have never been in movies before, basically like that's not true. You know, that's not true. And like, Maybe this, I don't know, like maybe I maybe I shouldn't go down this road, but like, you know, there are a lot of Asian filmmakers uh, who have been making films for quite a while that aren't obscure, you know, like uh, Japanese directors like Kurosawa and Ozu or like, you know, Chinese or Taiwanese directors mm-hmm. like Wong Kar Wai or like, you know, Hu Shan. Those people are actually part of the Western canon, by which I mean Western filmmakers are familiar with their films, right. reference them all the time, like I guess what I'm saying is like representation is not, not as obscure as some people make it out to be. And I, you know, I, I think that it kind of weirdly erases like the, you know, non-white directors and, uh, or filmmakers and actors and, you know, whatever producers that have actually been making work this whole time. Yeah. And, and not to like belabor the point, it kind of reminds me, and I think I mentioned this, maybe one of our first Jackman shows about like kind of the strange thing with the Biden administration in the early days, like making this big thing of like black cabinet appointments. And I'm kind of like, again, in so many parts of the country, people for generations have lived under a black political class. I mean, white and black people have lived under black political classes. It's, I mean, it's a little weird to be like, oh my God, a black politician or like, you know, it, it's just kind of strange and not really in tune with the reality. Mm -hmm. Well, 
Paul, uh, you're not gonna you're not gonna talk about a movie which, like I said earlier, I actually just watched for the first time. Um, I think we should warn people that that you will you will be or we will be talking about the end of the movie. Right. So if you uh, you know if you um, haven't seen The Killing Floor and you don't want to to hear any spoilers. Maybe close this and and then and come back later. Right, you know, and it's not a it's not a crazy plot twist. It's not like they're all zombies or something. But um, there will be a little spoiler in in this segment. But um, yeah, you, I you have to, to keep watching. They just cover your ears and da, 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 da. yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. right, exactly. <laughs> um, and so yeah, I wanted to cover this movie because I think I mean something that's disappointing about American movies is just how few depict working class life. So overwhelmingly, the focus is on the experiences and the strivings of the middle class and the affluent. And there are even fewer movies that depict union organizing at all, let alone in a realistic and compelling way. So that's why I wanted to take the opportunity today to highlight the movie The Killing Floor, which was, which was directed by Bill Duke in 1984. It's kind of a made-for-TV movie. It's, it's pretty rare to find. But the movie deals with the attempts uh, to organize workers in meatpacking plants of the Chicago stockyards during World War I. And the central focus of the movie is the immense challenging of uniting a diverse workforce that was usually divided among racial and ethnic lines. So let's first take a look at the trailer. Why don't we say it like this? The Lord has seen fit to reward me with a position at the Chicago Stockyards. Yes, ma'am. It's straight and simple, boys. We want everybody to join the union. Mr. I come up here to make a living. I ain't getting in no white man's fight, no, sir. Now get back to work earlier. You do whatever the boss says, don't you, boy? Here you ain't seen me in a whole year. You didn't bring me no flowers or nothing. But I guess that's what Chicago do to folks. A lot of Irish gangs all up and through here. But you gotta be careful how you step. See, there are all kinds of butchers. The stickers do like this. Days of peasants and serfs and slaves must be behind us. Now we're Americans now. Polish, Irish, colored, whatever you are. Let us be 100% union. Just like one of them cows, eh? Going to the slaughter of the white man leads him to it. How y'all colored folk doing? How you doing, white boy? They're gonna keep pushing us until we start killing each other. Colors will be brought in by the militia gonna herd the colors into the yards like a bunch of cattle. We was making progress, O'Neill! Now there's nothing but fire and smoke! I didn't ride that box all the way up here to be the same as I left. I was nothing when I come up here. And I ain't gonna stay nothing. Tomorrow, where you gonna be? Me and the union gonna be outside the damn slaughterhouse trying to keep those people from coming in to kill the coloreds. I love this movie because it stays true to the historical record and is painfully realistic about the challenges organizers in the labor movement face. Yes, there are parts of the movie that are inspiring and uplifting, but it doesn't try to paint labor organizing as a heroic struggle that is bound to succeed. As the story unfolds, it's clear that even with the best intentions and willpower, defeat is still possible. Frank Custer is the main character, and his... Life follows that of so many other African-Americans in the early 20th century. As scores of white working-class men went to fight in World War I, it created a huge labor shortage and a demand in the North for black workers. This spurred a massive migration of black people to northern cities, such as Chicago, where the film is set. 
This migration caused something of a sociological revolution in many cities. Southern blocks had to quickly learn to navigate a foreign, urban landscape. While they were now free of the most blatant assaults of Jim Crow, racial discrimination of course still permeated their daily lives. The film depicts how various black institutions related to the packing house companies. For example, Frank Custer gets a job in meatpacking by going to the local YMCA in a black community, which gives him a letter of recommendation for a job. This might seem like a mundane thing, but it highlights the strength packing house companies held over their workforce. Before the Great Depression, meatpacking companies were looked upon as benevolent institutions in the black community. This would complicate the attempts of unions to win over black workers. I wrote about how this played out in Chicago in a recent Jacobin article where I said, The paternalistic rule of the meatpacking companies won the allegiance of many workers. Top companies like Swift and Armour financed the activities of many important black institutions like the Urban League and the Wabash Avenue YMCA. And discrimination by labor unions in previous years allowed the companies to cynically use black workers as strike breakers. As a Chicago packing house company president described in the late 1920s, we took the Negroes on as strike breakers in 1921 and have kept them ever since in order to be prepared for any kind of outbreak. One of the things that struck me about this movie after watching it again is just how much of the action takes place in the workplace at the site of production. Just think about it. When is the last time you saw a movie where most of the activity is on the shop floor? By doing this, the film demonstrates how central work and production was and still is to society and workers' lives. In these scenes, we see the division of labor in meatpacking and how it was often racialized. Frank is chosen to work on the killing floor, which is where black workers were overwhelmingly concentrated. The killing floor was the dirtiest and hardest work, where the animals were slaughtered and prepared to be processed. But it was also the most strategic location, because after all, no meat could be processed if the animals were not slaughtered first. This dynamic made black workers very important to the success of unionization. We also see the diversity of the workforce. Frank is bewildered to see workers speaking Polish in all kinds of languages he's never heard of. At one point he says, how are you supposed to work with folks when you couldn't even understand them? On the first day, Frank's friend Thomas gets in a fight with white workers. He decides to quit and join the army. And early on we see that the pace of production is a central issue the workers face. With the war at its peak, demand for meat to feed all the soldiers was high. The managers were constantly speeding up production to dangerous levels for the workers. We see scenes of shop floor actions where workers refuse to work until the manager agrees to slow down the pace. Again, this is something rarely shown in a film. Frank finds himself caught in between a racial division about the union. The plant has a union presence, but a majority of the workers aren't yet convinced to join. Older union activists recognize that Frank isn't afraid to stand up to people, so they try to recruit him. But at first, Frank sees the union as a white person thing. There is only one older black worker involved in the union. He tells one union activist that he just came up here to make a living, not to get involved in the white man's fight. Other black co-workers ridicule the one black union activist, calling him an Uncle Tom. Some of these workers talk about their bad experiences with unions in the past that discriminated against them. One character, Heavy Williams, is the main leader among anti-union black workers, He says that it's good when unions and management fight it out. Under those conditions, black workers can take advantage. While pro-union people would of course disagree with this statement, it highlights the material roots of black workers' skepticism of unions at the time. Until the 1930s, black workers were often not allowed into unions, and usually the only way to get work was as strikebreakers. 
So under those conditions, it makes sense why many black workers saw unions as something alien to them. But eventually, Frank is persuaded to attend the union meeting, and he likes what he sees. He sees workers of different backgrounds uniting together, using translators to overcome language barriers. The main demands articulated were a wage increase, an eight-hour workday, and overtime pay. Back in the workplace, Frank participated in a shop floor action against speed-up. Afterwards, white workers, even some who he had conflicts with earlier, come up to him and shake his hand. And that scene might seem a little corny, but again, it gets at a very real dynamic in union organizing. Packing house workers, just like many other kinds of workers, started to overcome racial divisions through concrete actions of solidarity related to the workplace. They did not and could not do it through anti-racist trainings or white fragility sessions. It could only come about by proving solidarity through action. And that solidarity was built around shared mutual interests. We can see this outlook in the words of the packing house workers themselves. So, for example, Charles Fisher, who was a packing house worker in Kansas City that was instrumental in building the union in the 1930s, said this. There was, of course, the religious difference and that racial difference, which were obstacles at first, but which were all overcome. All of them, simply by showing the people that we all had a common goal to make a decent living to have a decent standard of living, and this is the way to go, and the only way to go, because without a union, we're all lost. And it's so. It's just that simple. There's nothing complicated about it at all. In the movie, Frank becomes imbued with the spirit of racial unity. We see the role unions played in providing a site for social integration. In one scene, we see Frank dancing with a white Polish woman at a union-sponsored party. And this is not made up. These things were happening in unions at the time. And you'd have to look very hard to find another institution in the early 1900s where integrated gatherings like that were taking place, or where a black man could dance with a white woman without it ending in violence. But despite this progress, the film does a great job of showing the vicariousness of working class life, and how much the union's progress is still dependent on outside structural factors. During the war, the labor market was tight, and the workers had leverage. When World War I ends, all of a sudden, the companies are back in control. They fire all the union activists and disrupt the union's progress. Racial conflict rises again as black workers are bitter about their jobs being taken by whites again. Packing house companies cynically played on racial division. They argued to black workers that the union was a force that disrupted their ability to secure stable employment. They plant false flyers saying the union wants to be all white. And we see a constant battle between individual and collective resistance. So Frank's friend Thomas returns from World War I. And like so many other black veterans, is bitter about how he's treated despite risking his life for the country. In one scene, Frank says to him that their only protection is the Union. Thomas responds by pulling out a gun and saying, this is the only protection I need. And that moment encapsulates so much of the struggle over what black resistance would look like. After World War I, this is the age of the so-called New Negro, of black people that weren't willing to take the same shit that they did before, of black people that were more willing to be militant. But what form would that take? Would it be black individuals arming themselves against whites, or would it be collective struggles to form unions and other organizations? And throughout the 1920s, a more individual form of resistance had won out as the trade union movement floundered. These tensions came to a boiling point with the Chicago race riot of 1919. It started when a young black boy was stoned to death by whites while swimming. The city exploded with rage as white gangs terrorized black communities, 
and blacks were not afraid to fight back. At least 40 people died in these riots. And again, what the film gives us is a picture of how these riots affected the workplace. People were not able to get to work, but the company provides charity donations of food to their workers at the YMCA. Black workers, again, get the impression that the company is there for them, but the union is not. In a nihilistic scene, the the anti-union stalwart, Heavy Williams, forces Frank to beg for a handout from the company and then lectures him about why the company is better than the union. It's a depressing scene of a worker carrying out the will of the company. Then, all the black workers hand Frank back their union buttons. At the next union meeting, white workers won't let Frank speak because of a rumor that black workers burned down a Polish neighborhood. Racial division has won out, but there are still small signs that certain lessons have been learned. As black workers return to work, the union organizes to make sure they aren't attacked by other white workers. And the most important part of the the movie is the final scene, and this is where the spoiler might come. In the locker room, Frank tries to give one more rousing speech to black workers about why the union is important. He tells them that they're trying to fight for a better life. That is why they came to the North, not just to take what the company gives them. The workers listen to him, but ultimately they are not convinced and walk away to start their workday. Then one young black worker comes back to Frank and shakes his hand. And for me, that scene says so much about the long game of organizing. Sometimes you need to plant seeds a long time before they can grow. The reality was the social and political barriers at that time were too much for the union to overcome. But the groundwork was laid for the next upsurge. If we fast forward 15 years to the mid-1930s, this time meatpacking workers were able to unite across racial lines and build an incredibly strong union. Many people like that worker who shook Frank's hand at the end were involved. They had lived through a defeat but had learned lessons from it, and were able to use that knowledge to make the next attempt successful. Many white workers learned from that experience as well. In the 1930s, workers that had experienced early defeats, even those that had racist attitudes as individuals, understood that this time they had to include black workers or they were doomed to defeat. And the union that was eventually formed, the United Packing House Workers of America, was not just any union. They were arguably the most advanced union when it came to fighting for racial justice inside and outside the workplace. The former NAACP labor director Herbert Hill, who was often very critical of labor's track record on race, said this of the UPWA. The uniqueness of this union was that it perceived itself not merely as a collective bargaining agent that provided certain services to its members in return for dues, but rather as a labor organization involved in social change. So The Killing Floor is a gem for its sober but still inspirational portrayal of multiracial union organizing and should serve as a model for all political filmmakers. And Jen, since you just watched it last night, I'm curious about your, you know, your reactions to the movie. So I want to first say that I went in watching The Killing Floor with very little knowledge about the movie. I knew that it was about, you know, interracial workers at a meatpacking plant at, in the early 20th century. I also knew that it was a movie that uh, first aired on PBS. I don't know if you mentioned that, but it, 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 it was a made-for-TV movie in the 1980s. So given all of that, I... To be quite honest, Paul, I did not have high hopes. I was like, <laughs> I know Paul likes it, so obviously I'm going to watch it, but like a PBS movie about like interracial union organizing, like the potential for it to be like extremely bad and corny, like in my mind was like pretty high. Right. And I want to say for the first half of the movie, like I liked it, but I was like, 
it's a little on the nose because of all of the like interracial solidarity, like Frank, the main character that you were talking about, he like, you know, was an impoverished sharecropper in the South. He comes to the North. He like lands in a black neighborhood in Chicago. And he's like, this is really great. He starts making friends with the the white workers at uh, the the Mm meatpacking plant. Um, Everything is on the up and up. But for everybody who hasn't yet seen The Killing Floor, definitely, like, it it gets dark. It gets really devastating. And I actually think that what I liked most about the movie is, is that it really does kind of defy an easy narrative, right? So, like, after the first half of the movie, when you kind of think that things are going to be, like, rosy, um, you really get hit with the reality of what happened. Right. And I think what is important about um, the kind of depiction of that failure of that, you know, union failure is that that's not really didactic either. I think that all of the characters in the movie are extremely complex. Uh, the what the, you know, racist white workers are actually complex. Um, but so is the anti-union black worker right. who, you know, ends up uh, like basically like being a catalyst in the breaking of the union. I mean, he's not like, like none of these characters are purely evil or right. purely good. And I think that's really interesting. And, you know, I when we get Eileen on in a couple minutes, like I definitely one of the things I want to ask her about is kind of this tendency for moralism toward moralism in American movies. Um, you know, I think that's something that we see a lot, and I think that the Killing Floor really resists that. Yeah, and, and what kind of impressed me so much? I mean, like you said, there's corny parts, there are parts that are on the nose. I'm not saying this is like the greatest film ever made, but no, I thought you know, it was good. <laughs> I, I like those corny parts. Now, yeah. But anyway, sorry, go on. Yeah. And but you know what really had interested me, you know, because I've I've been obsessed with the packing house workers because of just what an incredible union they were. And I've I've mm-hmm. done research and written a few articles and like watching a movie, like how historically accurate it is in every sense. Like they really. Yeah followed it closely and like get everything right and all these other dynamics you know so it's really it's almost like watching a documentary in a way um because of how accurate it is yeah um i also want to add just to the the end of the movie which i i agree with your reading of it but i also want to point out that you know even though there is kind of this moment of hope where as you say the two worker frank and you know the the young black worker they sort of shake hands and it seems like the uh the union you know might have might have a second chance at some point in the future which of course you point out it does that scene only comes after frank has essentially crossed a picket line so like even that moment in the movie which like has a glimmer of hope is still fraught with tension i mean the union is basically broken at that point uh and you know the strike breakers have been brought in so again um it's it's a really good movie. Absolutely recommend it. <laughs> um, yeah, and, you know. and, it, and I think, like, the bigger lesson thing, and, you know, it just sucks, but it's something we have to yeah. accept, is that, like, you know, you we're going to lose more often than we win, and, like, that's yeah. definitely true of labor. You know, I think a lot about Amazon in this context, but, like, I think the key is, like, you know, are you learning from your defeats? Like, and there there is a way where a defeat can plant a seed for a future victory. Um, but, you know, it is just a reality that sometimes, you know, you can have the most willpower, the best strategy. You know, there are certain structural forces that can defeat mm-hmm. union drives um, like like it did in, in this movie. Right, yeah. And to go back to what I was saying earlier about how I think that all of the characters in the movie are extremely complex and, you know, they're not just like, <laughs> no pun intended, black or white or yeah. like, you know, good or bad or like good or evil or whatever. I think... The reason why the characters are like that is because, as you said, the the film um, hues so close to the actual history, and it's just so close, it, or it's just so clear in the movie that 
everybody involved is subject to these larger structural, political and economic forces. Like it's not just right. a matter of like breaking bread with your white or black uh, coworker. Although in the movie that does happen. And sometimes, you know, it, uh, the movie shows that that is important and that, you know, sometimes can overcome those larger forces and sometimes it can't. Right. Yeah, for sure. Oh, and sorry, one last thing about the very end of the movie. So the the super, super last scene is actually uh, a, like, slide or it's, like, a little note about how everybody in the movie, you know, all of the characters in the movie, Frank, Thomas, uh, Heavy, who's the strike breaker, Mm -hmm. or, you know, the anti-union guy, uh, the white workers, uh, we don't have any historical record of them basically after that point. That is like the last scene of the movie, like the note that like, we don't know what happened to any of these people afterwards. And I think that's really poignant as well. Yeah, for sure. And it's like, I'm sure many of them eventually got fired uh, or I mean, just kind of disappeared into the ether. You know know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, again, everybody go watch The Killing Floor. Oh, I, I think it is available on Criterion. So if you yeah, have... That's yeah, that's basically like the only place to get it. So It's the only yeah. place? Okay. There's there's no... At least yeah, that I, I know mean, of, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, so you can find it there. And again, highly recommend. Um, I think let's go ahead and bring on Eileen Jones, yeah. uh, guest of the hour. Eileen Jones, of course, is the film critic for Jacobin. Uh, she is also the uh, she also has a podcast called Film Suck and is the author of Film Suck USA. Eileen, welcome to the Jacobin Show. I'm so glad the stars aligned and we're finally <laughs> able to have you with us. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. So prior to you coming on, we were you probably heard us talking a little bit about the mm. killing floor. Um, yes. Prior to that, I was talking a little bit about kind of this new uh Maybe not new, but this ongoing push among, mm-hmm. I guess you might say, mainstream liberal commentators mm-hmm. to really look at films as sites of political struggle and, mm-hmm. you know, sites of political activity. Mm-hmm. So I guess my first question for you um, has to do with moralism, because <laughs> I know that you recently uh, uh, or a while ago, you wrote an mm-hmm. article for Jacobin. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, Hollywood shouldn't remake The Brilliant Another mm-hmm. Round. Uh, mm-hmm. You talked about the movie with Mads Mikkelsen, Another mm-hmm. Round, which you point out is being remade for an American context mm-hmm. with Leonardo DiCaprio, yes. uh, and you worried that, uh, as many American films do, uh, it would inject some kind of moralism into what was otherwise a, a more morally ambiguous movie uh, by the director's mm-hmm. design and also, I think, in execution. Mm-hmm. So, um, sorry, this is a long-winded way. Of, <laughs> no, it's <I> okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is a long-winded way of asking. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of moralism. Um, mm-hmm coming out in films over the last few years and also Mm -hmm. in film criticism. Mm -hmm. What kind of explains this turn, which some people have called pop culture's great awakening? um, And and how do we, or how should we respond to it? Well, it's interesting to call it a turn because Mm. moralism in American, you know, popular culture, literature, et cetera, has long been considered a a problem, (laughs) like a disease of the culture that Mm -hmm. we, we, are disinclined to take on the kind of full adult ambiguity that makes black and white decision-making so difficult to impossible in most cases. So, but I, I know what you mean by the, 
Um, it seems as if a kind of permission, something got, something happened in recent years that has led to a kind of onslaught of, of, you know, and certainly the internet has, has, Mm -hmm. you know, boosted this beyond almost all human belief of now one gets to weigh in morally on every work, on every action, on every tweet, on every, and there's a kind of gusto to it that can get quite terrifying. Um, but trying to come up with what specifically did that, the, the, you know, the, the certain the certain social media forums are often blamed. Um, it, is it simply a radical political helplessness? We, we don't know what to do. <laughs> we feel helpless to do it. This is something we can do as a kind of social corrective. We can weigh in as that kind of what would have been presented in old movies as a little collection of townspeople with pinched faces, <laughs> who are the ones who are the social guardians. Um, now we can all take on that role and feel some sort of fat satisfaction and a, and a kind of spurious belief that we're doing something, we're having some effect in the world and on people's overall behavior that we don't feel perhaps that we can get politically. So I, I, I want to follow that up um, mm-hmm. by asking, you know, there's a uh, as you were saying, you know, the films themselves uh, can often kind of exude this moralism or like this yeah. didacticism or whatever, mm-hmm. or like, you know, want to impart a lesson to viewers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the other side of the coin, which you uh, were getting at a little bit, is that um, we see this coming out in film criticism as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that the late theorist Eve Sedgwick, I think, referred to it as good dog, bad dog criticism. Where, oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Where mm-hmm. where uh, that mode of criticism is we look at a movie or, you know, a work of art and we're really only able to judge mm-hmm. whether it's progressive for the time period or reactionary mm-hmm. for the time period. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I want to ask you about this because I don't think that your film criticism does this, uh, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you are a film critic for a socialist magazine with mm-hmm. obviously a political agenda. Mm-hmm. So I, I suppose the question is how do we engage in pr- political critique without kind of resorting to this good dog, bad dog style of criticism or maybe a follow-up is also, do you see that type of criticism being actually useful at times? I think it can be useful at times. And it. I think initially it started off being useful. And I think the idea was initially it was quite political. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a we have a kind of proud history of both, both filmmaking movements and critical movements that accompany them attempting to um, address the way the kind of stealth ideology of movies and other media are having a huge impact on us and have to be countered. So identify in what ways uh, a film that might pass as even being political in a progressive way, being able to sort of say, no, it's actually doing this other thing, seemed like an important part of the process once upon a time. I think it is morphed, however, and I think I was kind of there for that. I was I was a film studies grad student at UC Berkeley, and I was there as a kind of study of film in co- more perhaps more complex forms, turned fairly steadily toward what I felt were quite rote symptomatic readings. So you so you read fil- every film as the symptom of a sick society, and your goal becomes that's I know it's there, and I just I merely have to find it. And that can really render things simplistic in a hurry. If you're go- if you know you're going to be rewarded <laughs> um, for a kind of find the bunny in the picture that you know is in the picture um, um, revelation of how this thing airs in terms, especially, and this is very much came out of the academy, how to make how to um, you know sort of reveal how this airs in terms of representation 
Um, it was once race, class, gender were the th- the big three. Class was very much put aside. And this was something that literally happened. You were in seminar rooms as people began to mock the very notion of a Marxist critique that involved class. Um, and sexual gender sexuality came much more to the fore. And there was these were actual strong trends in the Academy and Film Studies and in other humanities departments. So it's an odd thing to have witnessed this, to have been there as this was kind of happening. And as those those types of uh, literal, literally, you know, papers written for conferences, publications, that you a consistent reward system got set up in terms of you being able to do um, take those kinds of actions in terms of your analysis and your application of theory. So I think it's bled out into, you know, which is strange. So many trends in the academy don't, but I think, I think those did. And again, I think it's given people at least something they feel they can look at and judge fairly readily <laughs> as we're in more and more of a crisis culture. And I think <clears throat> there's just increased helplessness People really are grateful to have one thing or two things or just a few things that they know they can look out for and judge in terms of ideology when we're, we're just in a time when it's I think people are feel very confounded politically, especially they just don't know, even if they are left leaning or feel that they are strongly left. I think it's very nerve wracking to wade in now and try to make political claims that you feel confident you're not going to get completely roasted for afterward i certainly go in with trepidation every time <laughs> every time yeah we we feel the nervousness on this show every time you oh know? yeah uh, yes What's every show is our last show um <laughs> absolutely and the, it's you know the hate mail rolls in yeah. sometimes. <laughs> yes um and something i mean jenna and i were talking about earlier mm-hmm. was i mean this idea of can art be a catalyst for political and mm-hmm. social change? And, and at least for mm-hmm. me, I think this is where people go wrong. I mean, both mm-hmm. people that identify as liberals or leftists right. is like this belief that like art actually can serve as a thing to mm-hmm. build a movement, um, you know, or, or do politics. So like, what mm-hmm. do you think of that? Can art, does art do that or can it do that or not? You know, it's, it's confusing because art had a proud history, art, including cinema. Mm-hmm. And, it's I even I find it harder and harder to believe it can have a strong impact. And I don't know if I'm simply being persuaded of that or if I feel the same kind of world weariness. Maybe I know too much about it. You know, it seems like we look back in the 20th century was the great era of experiments. If we're going to single out cinema for seeing how much political power you could harness through cinema. So going all the way back to, you know, Lenin usually gets pride of place for saying for us cinema is the most important art, clearly knowing we're going to be able to harness the incredible power. It's incredible emotional and persuasive power. It's mimetic qualities. It pre- presents a believable image of reality, intensely believable image of reality. There's all these reasons why it becomes the ultimate art for a whole series of movements that continues on internationally, that continues from the left up through at least the 1970s and then dies a kind of horrible death. Is it is it simple jadedness because people can say, well, it never gave us full communism. <laughs> you know, it never did it. Um, is, is it is it just kind of a sense of exhaustion? Is the torrent of media starting maybe, I don't know, in the 90s and then piss steadily picking up speed gotten so great that we can no longer even imagine? At best, I think we would say now it could augment. I, no one would be more delighted than me to see an independent film movement that was strongly, strongly political. 
And that's the only way I see it happening. I just don't see how we'd break that the headlock of a couple of multinational corporations that own all media. And at this point, we get an occasional one-off film and we're all excited, like, yay, Parasite, yay, Barbara, yay, sorry to bother you, or whatever, or TV show, White Lotus, really great. Um, but that one-off quality is precisely the discouraging factor. It's hard to even feel like a movement ever gets traction or if so please tell me if there is one and i don't know about it i'd love to know about it but it i think i think for so many people the idea of the propagandistic film from the left either means especially if they haven't read their chomsky if that's that's the bad propaganda is the bad stuff the nazis did in the 30s it, even the word has a kind of old-fashioned connotation i think for a lot of people and a negative one if you're a little more with it it's still hard to imagine how how we harness its power, how we just do it almost as an act of will. So I think part of the despair is in going, I just don't even see how it would have any large effect. There's too much media. There's too many people watching too many things to have a huge effect. So, oh, sorry. Oh, I just want to, I mean, something you hit at, I mean, and this mm. is part of my confusion with people like putting someone's stock in Hollywood or whatever is mm. like what you just said, like, do we really think Hollywood is our thing? Like we have control of that and not, I mean, there, there was a time, okay, we had enough communists in Hollywood to do something, but it's like, something. it just seems incredibly naive to be like, mm-hmm. we really need to fight over Hollywood and the Oscars yeah. when we know that's not our terrain. Right. And yet we're so desperate. <laughs> and I should say, wait, me, that yeah. I find myself getting drawn in. I amaze myself. Mm-hmm. Every time I say I'm through, then Parasite wins right. Best Picture. I'm like, oh my God, okay, it's a president. Yeah. And I hate myself in the morning <laughs> for even being for a second taken in by this because, you know, again, as we know, a little bit of seeming dissent, a little bit is works beautifully mm-hmm. um, with the system. So yes, just the practical questions of how do we even think we could get a movement going, but it makes your heart ache to look back at the at the discourse surrounding earlier movements that that literally took it seriously that cinema was going to be a powerful factor for a left-wing movement. You could weep. Like, no, this is one of the main ways we are brainwashed, you know, and we've got to counter it. We have to. We have to start making our own films. We have to experiment in form. Can't just be content. We're saying something didactic politically, but it's in exactly the same invisible continuity system form that Hollywood uses. It was like, no, we have to drastically experiment in the power of cinema and what we do to counter this just dreadful mind damaging content that we are macerating it. It was so sad. I was watching a documentary and I'm previewing for Jackman um, called blood brothers about the, uh, the short and fraught friendship of uh, Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. And, and there's a tribute paid by someone to Malcolm X's power as an orator saying no one could beat him for being able to communicate to an audience how your mind is under siege every day. And media is a big movies, television. It's a big part of it. And you have got to learn to stop that assault in order to at least partially free yourself from these dreadful damaging influences. You get, that's the only way you're going to be able to turn yourself around and be able to fight for something like freedom and justice. And I just almost was felt tears come to my eyes. Like people used to say things like that and you could believe them. And now where are we? It's like almost impossible to, to believe that could you free your mind from the ideological onslaught? I don't know, but I think people are much less 
I think people too tend to think they can free their minds. Is that your impression too? Yeah. Well, people I, not I, I, no, I, I mean, I wanted to ask you about exactly that mm. or about like this, this conception or the, the use and function of mass entertainment. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is Adorno right that it makes us all fascists? Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I think, or, you know, going back to what we mm-hmm. kind of started the conversation with, I think that there is sort of this, um, tendency now to, kind of want to say, you know, you know, a lot, I think a lot of liberal commentators want to say that mass entertainment is a really useful site of kind of, you know, moving mm-hmm. political activity forward. Um, again, right. just to circle back to that. Um, so uh, can you maybe talk a little bit about where, what you see the function of mass entertainment being? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, when, when you talk about, or you alluded a little while ago to kind of the political economy of, you know, mm-hmm. these Hollywood studios and, and right. like how they come to produce everything that we see. And, you know, mm-hmm. even if Parasite is good, it's kind of like, well, like, does right. that, I mean, should we really give Hollywood a break? But mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, I, I think at the same time, I, I don't want to suggest uh, that, you know, everybody is such a like dupe or like our, our right. you know, minds are so like empty or whatever that like whatever is thrown mm-hmm. at us will just sort of like fall in and like, you know, make us all zombies. So I don't right. know. <laughs> and it's very tricky if you get if one gets engaged in left organizing, if you join, you know, and I, I'll do a wide sweep. It could be anything from DSA through, you know, the full commun- joining the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. You tend to feel, I think that's the beginning of feeling armed and forewarned and more and more capable of parsing. It just seems to come with the territory. You join a reading group, <laughs> you start to get the basic concepts, you start to apply them. But the more you tend to know people who are not who are not politically engaged in that way, even if they think they're to the left, they're the left that is neoliberal and completely behind the democratic party, but they mm-hmm. think they're left is to be more terrified is, is to feel a little more like that old guard of generations ago of this, like, how do I free? I, I have relatives who, who, who watch MSNBC by the hour <laughs> on repeat and quote it chapter and verse and and the pain of being around those who are not at all armed <laughs> and who do seem kind of defenses and who do believe what they're told and think NPR is telling you the absolute truth about everything and the New York Times is 100% to be believed and that that's where you get a little more nervous when you know a lot of people um who are those people, then, then you're more anxious about like the, wow, we've just still got to do even the basics. And how do we do it? How do you convince people who are like, we've got the numbers on our our side and all the media pretty much reflects what I think is true. So you're nuts. So, so it sort of depends on where you're standing in relationship to, to this problem we're talking about. If it's, I guess it's a problem. (laughs) Um, uh, So it's, 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 it's hard to have an answer for this. On the one hand, I want to say, yes, w- this cultural dupe thing was always offensive. And it was very big in the academy when I was in grad school. Mm-hmm. Everyone's an idiot except us. We are the ones who now understand and have to tutor everyone else. You know, it took a long time for kind of Stuart Hall. You know, there's poaching. There's reading against the grain. We take things for our own uses all the time. That 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 was a maddening tendency um, of contempt for you know the hoi polloi out there who aren't who aren't educated. But there's also a level of of terror of the extent to which, if people aren't already seeking it out, they what is their access you know to any any other way of thinking about the the vast gushings of mainstream media. 
And then I don't have an answer for. Maybe you guys are young. You tell me. <laughs> we're we're too brainwashed. I mean, we're far gone. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> we've been brainwashed since birth. Um, so, well, do you have like relatives or people you know who are definitely not not brainwashed? Well, I mean, actually, I mean to follow up on this and really uh, to go back to something you said before. I mean, this idea that like, uh, well, I mean, in order to resist and fight back, we need to have defenses against the the mass mm. media culture. I mean, and to throw something out there, I mean, kind of as a devil's advocate. I mean, thinking about the worker upsurge of the 1930s, and it's like, mm. I mean, by that time, yes, there wasn't TV. It wasn't mm. as sophisticated, but like mass consumer culture was already consolidated. Absolutely. I mean, through radio, music, mm. and I'm sure many of those workers were imbued mm. with that. But yet we still see this upsurge. Now, of course, right. did they build socialism? No, blah, 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 blah. But and I think, you know, maybe the traditional Marxist sense is that like, ultimately, the material conditions can break through that noise as I think like right. the depression did. So I guess, mm-hmm. how would you react to that? I mean, the idea that, you know, we still see that even a population that is under this mass entertainment consumption mm-hmm. industry will still fight back um, even without having the defenses up already. Right. I mean, you certainly that, that is hard to argue. We, we certainly had mass media, in a well in operation and yet had a lot, lot stronger, you know, union memberships, labor, yeah, activism, we made more progress, it seemed, in other eras. But then you go wind up going back and forth, kind of depending on the era you're looking at. I mean, where does the whole Frankfurt School come come from? They come from the question, we had, the, there was the successful Russian Revolution. You've got a Soviet state. You had World War One. That so with so much anguish and disillusionment that there's literal art forms that are about we need scorched earth now. I mean, really radical art movements. And they're like, how did we not? That the biggest fear rolling through Europe is the, that that revolutionary impulse is going to go. It's going to come and it's going to wipe us all out, ruling class. And it doesn't happen. That's how you even, as far as I know, begin what we consider the the era of trying to address what do we do about this, you know, the ideological state apparatus? What do we do about creeping brainwashing? Um, that, ah, I don't know, I'm as torn as you. Because it does seem like, I think everyone feels like there's something fundamentally, we tried it, it's, it's an old-fashioned approach. It's hard to imagine now that we could just har- harness the power of media and it would have such amazingly persuasive power. It could overwhelm material conditions. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting to think it was the material conditions that led people in despair to say it still didn't happen and that was the best chance of it ever happening. And what else is in play here that we're not maybe not seeing that would cause people to live their lives and practice their politics in utter what? In, in utter defiance of what their material conditions are. So that's why I'm always torn. Maybe I, too much film study has poisoned my brain to a certain extent, perhaps, and too much nostalgia, perhaps, for, for, for a feeling that once you could have some confidence that you could harness the power of cinema to do something for you, and now it just feels like we have no, we have no confidence. Cinema plus all the other media, and we have no sense that that would help us. And, you know, I mean, when it comes to media, and, and I feel like we've mm-hmm. asked this of a, a number of mm-hmm. our guests, you know, in the, in the last year, you know, something interesting that's happened since the first morning run. I mean, there's this whole new mm-hmm. ecosystem of, I mean, essentially independent left media. I mean, this right. channel, but I mean, including others that get mm-hmm. way more views than we do. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there is something about that that's hopeful. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, I always tell people like, look, what we're doing now, I'm sorry, is not the height of political <laughs> engagement. Like, right. you know what I mean? We <laughs> should not. Propaganda. Right. Yeah. I mean, we sh- <laughs> definitely should not overstate what this is. But I do right. think it is somewhat significant. I mean, there are so many more outlets that are ready made uh-huh. for people can go to to kind of combat this ideological onslaught. I mean, what do you make of maybe this new left media ecosystem? Do you find it hopeful or not? Um, where do you, th- where do you I, think it might go? I tend to find it a little more hopeful than perhaps if you're being intelligently cynical, <laughs> maybe because <laughs> I'm part of it. But one of the, one of the issues I've ever, I've always had in my own involvement politically is we need more ways for people to get involved. We don't take seriously enough how many people are not at all suited to to what we would consider true political organizing. There's got to be things that people can do to be part of a larger movement. And I don't think we cast a wide enough net. Everybody, I'm sorry, is not going to be a good canvasser. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. <laughs> but we always say that everyone can. Everyone can do it. Everyone will be great. To... No, we need a, I think we need a far greater diversity of fronts that people can attack in their own way. Is it going to be the thing that turns the tide? No. But the more, not only the more people can have, find something that they can do and be, and be what? Very engaged and, and, and very involved in, but the more people can just can simply see there's more of it. I mean, you want to be able to always point people to the easily go listen to this show, go watch this, go read this nude source. You want, the more you have of that, the more, the better it's going to be. Because, you know, you really can use that matrix example that was in so many academic studies. So the matrix, which is, this is a great example of uh, the, the, the ideology argument, is you're in the matrix from the time you're born, so you don't know you're in the matrix. You're the meat battery that's, that's running the society. But it's such a convincing illusion, right? Why? Because everything reflects it back to you. So the more things that can possibly break through, in any way, large or small, the better. I mean, I used to love to read about third cinema events where even to go to a movie, much less to make the movie in certain certain nations at certain times, could have you know gotten you arrested and maybe killed. It, you know, that there would be artists doing poster art outside. There would be people reading their poems. There would be it was it was a kind of all in everybody as many people as we could get to be involved in this event. That's better. Even if, yeah, the poem ain't going to do it. (laughs) The poster ain't going to do it. But the more you can engage people and say, yes, there is something you can do, the better off we're going to be. From from each according to his ability. Absolutely. (laughs) And we're just, we're not as good at it as we need to be. From each according, I think the real quote was from each according to their canvassing ability. (laughs) Right, yeah. That's the version (laughs) I saw. I say this is the worst canvasser, which is why I bring it up. (laughs) I did it. I sucked. (laughs) Maybe I could have gotten better, but. (laughs) Well, I mean, I do, I do want to turn to your uh, specific ability uh, in in some detail, actually, because you have an article in the recent print article or the, the recent print article of or sorry print issue of jacobin uh called blue collar jocks uh it's a great <laughs> article and uh you, you you basically look at 1970s sports movies right mm-hmm. and you um you have this argument that they're they're interesting even though lots of people tend to think of them as formulaic or even mm. lowbrow um mm. so so talk to us a little bit about uh the, the jock movies um what is significant about them and um well i i have a follow-up but 
Wait, okay. jocks. <laughs> I mean, and, and it's even to do the jock movies is so embarrassing, right? I mean, of all categories, I never thought the editors would go for it. <laughs> and I will confess the reason I wanted to do it is because two movies I love are The Bad News Bears and Slapshot. <laughs> I wanted to figure out how I could write about them. And, but So that was when I started watching more of these 70s sports movies. And I was just shocked, just shocked at the practically Harlan County, USA level of grim reality that forms the backdrop of a number of these movies. I just, I had seen some of these when I was a kid and I did not remember those effects at all because again, they tend to be, not all, Fat City, for example, is God, prepare yourself if you're going to watch that movie. It's so harrowing. But but many of them are comedies. Um, and, and again, the, there's this feel-good element, at least for people who like sports, of this, the big climactic sports contest, whatever it is, sports ball, all that. It's, it's that they would combine those kind of feel-good, fun movie elements with, even in the comedies, these absolutely devastating scenarios. Slapshot is about a, a failing minor league hockey team in a town where the the only industry is this one industry that supports the whole town, and it's closing. And the team is being sold off as, as a tax write-off. It's a tax write-off team. I guess what it always was, and now it's just being sold. So everything is ending in the grimmest possible way, and yet it's this really raucous, weirdly life-affirming comedy. And it's that kind of kind of casual, yeah, where we, we represent the reality of what was happening in the 70s um, that you just do not see now. I don't think you would just see, like, wow, that's a hilarious rom-com about how everybody got laid off and <laughs> or working eight jobs and still can't make rent. And you just, you wouldn't tend, I don't think, to see nearly as, as sharp a combo of elements that don't seem to go together and yet are thrilling when you watch it. Um, and I, I always tend to wish we'd have not just a bunch of art films or independent films or avant-garde films that are strongly politically left, which we're more likely to get, frankly, that it would be better to get genre films because people will go to them and people are influenced by genre films in ways that they don't even know. Talk about an ideological stealth bomb. Go to, an, go to a genre film every time. Because people are not expecting to have any kind of, you know, political argument made to them. So, of course, they're just there to have a good time. And usually those are the very people who are going to say it's just a popcorn movie. And it wasn't trying to tell me anything. And it's Top Gun. It's the worst kind of propaganda. It was the best military recruiting tool that existed up to that time. There's nothing good about Top Gun. But people would swear they absorbed nothing of an ideological nature from it because it's just a movie. So there's a tremendous power in popular art that's a kind, admittedly a kind of stealth power. And I, there's a, a number of movies that are during a number of periods where you can watch things like there's a comedy called The Devil and Miss Jones, which is all about, you know, trying to unionize a store. Um, and it's got stars and it's charming and it's a screwball comedy. And you're like, I, I, what would it be like to have 10,000 of those movies? I know we're saying Hollywood can't really help us, but again, just to have another reality, a reality that's anything like your own reality reflected back at you would seem like some sort of a godsend. I mean, this is actually a perfect segue to what I wanted to follow up on. Um, mm-hmm. cause you know, as you said, overwhelmingly now, TV and movies, I mean, they de- depict the lives of the upper middle class and the affluent. Right. And, you know, recently I've kind of especially noticed this among, you know, shows and movies that depict mostly black characters. And I, yeah. I'm kind of seeing it very clearly of how it's framing this recent racial mm-hmm. militancy. You know, it's always talking about, you know, the 
aspiring black entrepreneur or, or this or that or right, trying right. to move up in the, in the corporate world. But mm-hmm. I guess, you know, why does it matter that like the experiences of working class people are not being reflected in media? Mm-hmm. Like what effect is this having on our culture or our political culture or on everything? Well, you know, once upon a time, people would have talked about a, just a dangerous level of disconnect of just like your own consciousness of yourself when it's never reflected back at you. <laughs> You can wind up believing in a world that actually is, in fact, that is the result. You wind up believing the world is what it you you should know it isn't, and that that is can be a tremendous danger. You know, Italian neorealism. What is it all about? It's it's this post-war film movement that's all about saying, look, we spent X number of years watching fascist entertainment that was all about the upper classes living in, you know, all white Art Deco apartments answering white telephones. They were called white telephone films. <laughs> And no one was ever going to take a camera outside of the studio, literally walk out with a camera and show you what the streets looked like and show the poverty and show the rubble from the bombs. And so that's what we're going to do because people will stand for a tremendous amount of disconnect. Like they won't even notice like, wow, they're shooting in an apartment and this is supposed to be a working class couple maybe. And it's 4,000 square feet <laughs> and it's New York. They, they could never, most people will not even notice that. They just make a mental adjustment upward in class and you could argue start identifying upward in class you don't identify with your own experience you identify with the one that's constantly mirrored back to you which i think is that is a real thing i can i think i can attest to some of that growing up before i had any exposure you know to left-wing politics and you know just simply a better way of reading the world i think i was very much inclined to think of myself as i think i can still remember a kind of gasping and going oh my god i think we were lower class people because <laughs> i had always just assumed i was middle class because everyone said they were at least in fact everyone even rich people would say they were middle class everyone when i was growing up said they were middle class so we thought we were middle class and i look back and i'm just like we weren't but i couldn't say that to myself I couldn't somehow realize I wasn't. I think it's because the whole world told me you're middle class. Everyone in America is middle class in these years. Of course, now that wouldn't happen anymore. But I think there is that real danger that you identify with people you are not. There's a reason people don't want to be called workers still. That you, As soon as you say, you know what we need is a worker party, all you can think of is who would join except the already committed hard left. Because just calling myself a worker in the American culture in which we live now is kind of calling yourself a failure. It might be a little less bad than it was, maybe, but it's a terrible tendency for, for all of us to want to think somehow I'm, I'm identifying up. And I think that's a media, that is partly a media thing. I, I want to ask what you make of this mm-hmm. um, kind of other trend in criticism. I think it's maybe a little less popular now, um, but it's this tendency to, I guess, read resistance into, um, again, everything. Yeah. Mass entertainment (laughs) or like even like pretty reactionary works of art. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I mean, this is like a little facetious, but maybe like one example is like, you know, people, there was like kind of like a trend a while back where people would be like, oh, the the Britney Spears song Work Bitch is actually about the labor theory of value or something, you know? And like, I think that a lot of those kinds Mm -hmm. of uh, engagements were a little Mm -hmm. tongue in cheek, or again, it was, Mm -hmm. I think in in its own way, an attempt to push back on kind of some of the dogmatic, you know, like, like, didactic like good dog bad dog criticism mm-hmm. but 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 what do you make of this tendency is it still kind of going around is it useful at all i 
it's still I, it's not, it doesn't seem to me it's quite as bad as yeah. it was but maybe i'm dreaming but it does seem like it's not as bad <laughs> no, I, think it's, point, I think it's died down too but it's a little yeah but i again i'm reading I'm, i don't know why i'm in such a sympathetic mood normally i'm so mean but I, <laughs> for some reason i just feel this tender pity but it does feel like to me that there are an awful lot of people who who are aware <laughs> As things get worse and worse, we're just finally getting hit with so many disasters that people who could be comfortably liberal are less and less comfortably liberal, even if they're not really wanting to admit it, and want to feel like they're doing something or somehow they're on the right side of history, if you will. And one way of being able to do that is to feel like you're part of the resistance because you bought a T-shirt or something, (laughs) and it had some slogan like, uh, oh, shoot, I wish I could think of one of the Hillary Clinton or Ruth Bader Ginsburg ones. There were some buttes. Um, uh, But still she resisted. What was that? I can't even remember it. But still she, but still she, ah, I can't think of it. Yeah, it was, it was, but still she resists. You know, that would be on t-shirts and coffee. Yeah, or or a notorious that. RGB. I saw notorious that, RG- yeah. that whole cult yeah, of Ruth Bader yeah. Ginsburg was, oh, Jesus. Um, so yeah, I think, but I think there, and I, and I make this argument a lot and it's unfair. And who, who am I addressing? Who am I telling to fix this? There's nobody to fix it, but just taking seriously the fact however appalling it seems, that people are desperate to feel meaningful and to feel that their lives add up to something and mean something. And if you if if they don't have something, they'll grasp they'll grasp at what they can get. And it is often going to be something bad. You know, I can go by my cousins who who all went hard, hard right. They hadn't been that, you know, they they but they went terrifyingly hard right in the years before Trump and then became Trump supporters. And and several of them had been in the military in my family, again, lower class, military's an option. Um, so a number of my family members wound up in the military. All of them, as far as I know, hated it. And the one who hated it the most, to the point that I'm told by my brother, who, who was close to my cousin, said he used he was on drugs the entire time, hard drugs, the only way he could get through it. I wound up having a big argument with him because he now was talking about how he was proudest of his service to the country that had helped preserve American freedoms. And I was just like, he's rewritten his entire history in middle age so he can feel that his life has meant something <laughs> that he's, he's somehow done something he can look back on as meaningful and feel proud of. And I think people will do some very terrifying things to have that feeling. And if they don't have that feeling, they're going to grasp, they're going to try to figure out a way to have it. And that's something it's, it's too much of a burden to put on the left. It's, it's too much of a burden to put on anyone, but it's something that I feel very intensely is, is, and I feel it myself. That people want it so much, they'll go to a lot of extreme and often really, we would think, very bad extremes to get it. How we address that, I don't know. But it seems like, to me, a huge motivating force in wanting to feel like you're part of the resistance, for example. So, Eileen, I think we uh, are are going to let you go soon. But I do have one final question for you, which is, Mm. what is The Shining about? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, if you want to, I totally really want to but... probably be here for another. Week. <laughs> yeah, we would. We'd be yeah. here for a while. <laughs> um, actually, I mean, actually, the my real question for you mm-hmm. is, I think, not unrelated. Um, mm-hmm. But but it is, um, what what are some of your favorite movies about capitalism? Oh my god, about capitalism. I I usually come come in a kind of backdoor toward it. I tend to be very fond of again. I, t- I again, I'm very fond of genre films. I tend to be very fond of the 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 
you know, the very unique genre of film noir. I think actually somebody wrote a really great piece. I wish it had been me for Jacobin on, on film, on the political aspects of film noir. Um, one of them, and again, it's, it's not super direct, but I think that's what I like about it. It has a kind of insidious power. One, one example would be the asphalt jungle. If you've ever seen that 1950 movie, it's directed by John Huston. It's about, of course, something that's been done many times, a, a heist that fails, that looks like it can't fail, and then it does fail. But one of the things it does without preaching about it or, or yeah, or, or making it the overt plot is it shows you how warped the people in, who are all involved, and they're all from all different classes who are involved in the heist, how they've all been horribly warped by the system that they're in without knowing that that's what did it. And you get glimpses of a number of them, of what, who they might have been. And I'll just give one example. His, his name is Dix. And he's essentially a goon. He's he's muscle for these these criminal jobs he he's he does. Um, but you, his whole meaning in life is what his what the, his family lost in the depression, which was a Kentucky horse farm. But otherwise, he's the he's the meanest, the toughest, the apparently completely estranged from his humanity guy that you would never mess with in a million years. But in the end, when he's dying, he does this desperate drive back to the farm that he's, he's hallucinating. He's, he's forgotten. They, they lost the farm, you know, decades earlier. So his family's destroyed by the depression. They lose everything he has. He winds up being this goon who relates to no human being. Um, has, seems to have no human, particularly no human feelings, but you see, you get glimpses at the very end that are very heartbreaking of who he might've been if that hadn't happened to him. And so he's one of the more extreme, there's even a wealthy lawyer who's like a real, a real creep where you even see moments with him of how doing what he did for a living and being in this prestigious position that he's been in it, but doing heinous things all his life has destroyed him as well. So it's this kind of very um, kind of tender and astute look at the very different ways people can be ruined by the capitalist system. Very moving film. So that's one of my favorites. It's not an obvious one, but I'm trying no, not no, to. I have something, <laughs> so I have something to watch now. There we go. Yeah. Oh, please do. It's wonderful. Well, Paul, do you, do you care to uh, weigh in on, on your favorite films about oh, yes, other than the killing floor, which we all know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh man. I'll be honest. I don't, I don't know if I really do. I mean, aren't all yeah. films about capitalism? Uh, <laughs> ah, oh. no, that yeah. is a slick answer. <laughs> I wish I'd thought of that one. <laughs> I'm sure no right, one has well, thought of that. There's no yeah. <laughs> paper in the academy about that at all. Oh, heavens no. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jen, that leaves you. Yeah, I know. It's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I like the really kind of um, grotesque ones like Taxi mm-hmm. Driver, you know? Mm, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good um, choice. Yeah. But, or, Maybe I should go ahead and op- open up the Pandora's box and say The Shining. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Why, Why not? <laughs> <laughs> and we'll all go watch that and yeah, think about that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, um, Eileen, thank you so much for you. Uh, joining us. Like I said, it's great that the stars finally aligned and, and you were able <laughs> yes. to come on the Jacobin show today. Um, every, I'm sure, you know, all of our watchers are familiar with, uh, mm-hmm. your, your column in Jacobin. You're of course, Jacobin's resident film critic. Mm-hmm. Um, I encourage everybody to check out your podcast, Film Suck. Uh, I don't know if you have any books coming out that you want to plug or. If only I've been mean, <laughs> I've been writing a book on the Coen brothers for these last 20 years. Okay, so someday. Well, yeah. Yeah. To be continued. <laughs> all right. So sorry. Keep, keep one your last... eye out for that. 
<laughs> Do you agree that The Lady Killers by the Coen Brothers is a very underrated film? I actually... I'm glad you said that. Terrible. It's the, like, it's the, it's so funny. It's the only one of the films that are hated. Like, it's you know, so Tell the Cruelty, they're right. But I love The Lady Killers. I'm so thrilled no one has ever Thank said you. that. Thank you. Thank you. Like, it's so I great. Agree. And no one knows about it. Wow. Anyway. Hell, I wish you brought this up earlier. Yeah, I'm sorry. Talk about? Next time, next time, next time. Yeah, next time. Stay tuned for part two entirely <laughs> on The Lady Killers. On the Lady Killers. <laughs> there you go. All right. Thank you so much, Irene. Thanks, Eileen. Thank you, guys. Bye. Wow, I feel so validated. Um. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Paul, sliding in there with that last question, like completely validated. Right. But that was a great conversation. I didn't know I liked talking about culture, but there you go. Yeah. Uh, Paul, you, you're you you're all about superstructure now. Yeah. No you're more labor, up on Paul. labor organizing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's movie Paul from now right. on. Right. That's it. <laughs> I mean, you know, on that note, we do have a we do have a short Labor Paul segment today. Um, again, if you have questions for Labor Paul, unfortunately, we are not uh, answering an audience question today, but we will on the next show. So, so definitely feel free to pop those into the chat or into the comments below. Um, Paul, you've had supply chains on your mind, yes? I have, yes. So, um, some of you might remember on a recent show that we did with Max Max Alvarez from the Real News Network and Working People Podcast. I talked about how important logistics has become to the modern economy and how the organization of global supply chain has made companies actually very vulnerable to disruption. Um, And again, by logistics, I simply mean the systems in which goods and parts are moved from one place to another. And so logistics has been organized around what's called just-in-time delivery systems, where companies depend on parts and products being delivered just in time to be used instead of being put in storage, which leaves them vulnerable. And the resurgence of COVID-19 through the Delta variant is actually demonstrating this vulnerability as we are in the midst of a global supply chain crisis. So as the Delta variant disrupts economies, especially throughout Asia, it has caused a shortage in parts and raw materials. But at the same time, there is an increase in demand for these parts as more economies across the world open back up. And this has caused shipping costs to go up and made container space hard to come by. So I know I just said a lot, but let's listen to what an analyst from Bloomberg has to say about this. We spoke to a lot of manufacturers in recent weeks, and we asked them, what is their outlook now as we head towards the end of the year and as Delta spreads, like you mentioned? And the message from all of these manufacturers was that actually they're girding for the long haul now. They don't see these problems with shipping containers being resolved anytime soon. They continue to complain about shortages of key input materials for their products. And of course, there's ongoing disruption as they try to get their products around the world. And remember, we're going into the all-important holidays or Christmas shopping season now. So this is bumper time for consumer manufacturers and for shippers. And both of them are saying that there's a logjam out there. And that will, of course, continue to have an upward pressure effect on inflation. And it will, of course, have a downward effect on the global growth recovery. This has caused major corporations to reduce production and rethink the overall organization of supply chains. The Financial Times discussed this recently. It's saying Scott Price, the president of UPS International, told the Financial Times today that companies now understand that reliance on stretched supply chains is a risky business. The damage done to the aviation industry during the pandemic has exposed the vulnerability companies face when shipping cargo is in the belly of passenger aircraft. He says, especially when long-distance air travel is not expected to fully recover until 2025. And it goes on to say, 
Car makers are particularly vulnerable. Toyota on Friday cut its annual production targets after a surge of COVID cases in Asian factories, compounding pressures from the global semiconductor shortage, while at German manufacturers there's a large gap between orders and output. And this increased shipping cost has caused bottlenecks at ports. So Bloomberg reports that the cost of sending a container from Asia to Europe is about 10 times higher than in May 2020, while the cost from Shanghai to Los Angeles has grown more than sixfold, according to the Drury World Container Index. The global supply chain has become so fragile that a single small accident could easily have its effects compounded, said HSBC Holdings PLC said in a note. So back when just-in-time supply chains were first being designed, labor organizers were actually surprised that companies were doing this because it left them so vulnerable. And so far, for the most part, workers in logistics have not taken advantage of this opportunity. But we're seeing the potential disruption that labor action in the sector could cause just through COVID-19. And the question is whether corporations that are starting to recognize this vulnerability will be able to change course to protect themselves. And the even bigger question is whether more logistic workers will recognize this strength and act on it. But this supply chain crisis is another reminder that for all this talk of a service economy or post-industrial economy, the production and movement of goods still lies at the heart of the modern global economy. Um, And Jen, I know you always think about supply chains, right? Um, But I don't know if you have any thoughts about this, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, First of all, do you think the movie Nomadland is about logistics? No, I'm just kidding. Oh, I haven't even seen it. (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, Francis McDormand does work at an Amazon warehouse. Okay. uh, But I'm I'm just kidding. (laughs) You should watch the movie, though. We can talk about it next time. That's true. Now that I'm moving Paul, you know, I got to actually watch movies, I guess. Yeah. Um, No, but to, to, uh, you know, go back to the supply chains and, uh, you know, logistics, I was recently thinking about, so, so, you know, I've mentioned on the show before, um, a few months ago, I moved to Albuquerque. Uh, so I now have to have a car. Um, uh, and it's actually been really difficult to find either a new or used car that is like at all affordable, um, because of some of these supply chain, uh, like log jams that have been going on basically since the start of the pandemic. Um, if you've had to buy a car recently, like, you know, I'm sure you're commiserating with me right now because like, it's just driven up prices for consumers. Um, but also, you know, again, it's not just the new cars, it's the used cars as well, um, because of the way that these different markets interact with each other. Right. And so, you know, again, like, I, I think it just goes to show how we kind of take the steady, you know, the steady flow of the supply chain for granted, but you're right. right. Like the workers who are involved in every step of that process do have quite a lot of leverage. Um, and actually, do you, I, I can't remember the name of this book, but it's about basically how the like auto industry in the U.S. basically stopped being competitive with uh, auto industries, you know, outside of the U.S. Right. once it shifted to just-in-time production. Um, I haven't read it. Was it yeah. Mike Parker who wrote it? Or I, I might I'm be sorry, making it up. I, I think remember. he wrote a review yeah. of it. But Okay, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, what's interesting is, like, even if companies are starting to recognize this is a vulnerability, I mean, it's not like it's very easy to just, like, change these global supply chains overnight, you know, and I think in some ways they're kind of, like, locked into it. But, I mean, it's it's pretty incredible to think about, you know, what if there was actually deliberate worker action Mm -hmm. to disrupt some of this stuff? I mean, we're already seeing how it's being disrupted, and that's not even being done on purpose by anyone. Right, right, yeah. What do you think it would take to get... Uh, logistics workers who, of course, are spread out all over the country, I mean, all over the world, 
to that point. Yeah, I mean, you kind of never really know. I mean, yeah. one of the positives things about this too is that like it, it wouldn't actually even take a coordinated action across the globe because part of the way these things are set up is like it could actually be by workers in one part of a chain disrupting would affect the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And, you know, and I think like, you know, increasingly in the United States, like, again, we do have some logistics workers like UPS workers who are in unions. We're looking at Amazon and, and other places So I think hopefully, you know, if we make some breakthroughs unionizing them, you could see more of these actions. But again, like it is, it's a global fight as well. Uh, I don't know. I guess you never, you never know what could like trigger it um, to a point or when there might be this realization of this kind of power. Um, But I think, you know, it's almost like always with these upsurges when it happens, I guarantee you like no one will have been expecting it or predicting it. Um, So that's my cop out answer. To be continued. Yeah. This is the book. This, this is, is the, the book. book. Yes, this yeah. is absolutely the book. Go buy this book. <laughs> Kale, have you read it? No, I haven't read it. But, okay, but, uh, but you think that everyone should buy it anyway. Yeah. No, it well, is really it, it is really interesting. <laughs> well, no, um, because the, the authors, uh, Joshua Murray and Michael Schwartz, have had two essays in Catalyst uh, oh, okay. that is dealing with this. And yeah, and, and to Paul's point, Mark Mike Parker has a rebuttal or like a, a somewhat of a critique, but it's not it's like a partial critique. It's kind of um, he's adding information that uh, uh, Joshua and Michael don't cover in their first essay. Um, and their the reply essay is like, yeah, no, that, that a lot of that's right. Like you're right to point that out, but mm-hmm. also like we should focus on the fact like they're dealing with the, the thing that um, it's, it's been a typical argument that the reason why U uh, S uh, auto manufacturers kind of lose their, um, their global uh, place at the top in, in uh, auto competition is because the American unions undermine uh, the company's abilities to compete. But that's actually just not what happens. It's what mm-hmm. Ben was just saying a moment ago, that it's really the industries themselves that undermine. Um, and part of it's like a way to attack the unions. Right, so. exactly. Yeah. Anyways, right, like spreading, like spreading out different plants and like not wanting workers to be close together and stuff. And basically, in essence, creating these longer and longer supply chains, which, as Paul points out, now have the potential to be disrupted at any given point. Yeah. So, yeah. Re- so, yes, book. wrecked. Uh, the authors have apparently been vouched for by Catalyst, a.k.a. Vivek Chibber. So definitely right. check it out. Can't argue with that. Can't argue with that. All right. Well, again, if you have questions for Labor Paul, um, please feel free to pop those into the chat or in the comments. And we promise we will be taking audience questions and answering them on the next show. So I guess on that note, um, Paul, unless you've got some last last minute thoughts on movies or and or supply chains. Uh, I, I just have some movies to watch. So, yeah, exactly. It. Yeah. Um, I, I saw like some people in the chat also recommending some. Yeah. things. So definitely, you know. I, I'm excited to to check out the ones that I haven't seen already. Also, I'm just I'm inviting myself one more time to everyone should go watch the movie The Merchant of Four Seasons by uh, Fassbender. It's I think Fassbender. Um, uh, Megan Day wrote uh, a good piece in a recent in the recent print issue on kind of Fassbender being like the working class filmmaker, um, and I think she's right. Um, it's just a good, it's a good argument because she's right. Um, <laughs> oh, and, that's how uh, that criticism works. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but people should watch Fassbender's movies, in particular, The Merchant, the Merchant of Four Seasons, that I think it's um, a really 
realistic in the same way that I think you were um, we were talking earlier about kind of the realism uh, of union workers uh, in you know in meatpacking. This is like uh, the realism of a working class family um, where like the uh, the husband is he sells pears for a living in uh, in Germany. He's just he like is on the street uh, trying to get people to to buy his pears, the fruit. And um, it's it's like their intrafamilial conflicts and how uh, working class uh, living standards deeply impacts that. And so it's like both good psychologically, it's good, uh, like it's a good exposition of um, like working class life and like as it like actually uh, not not always, obviously, but like in a manifestation of how it like can actually play out um, of like how it how like not having uh, material resources and, and like living through this, like the, the stress of having to like sell yourself over and over and over again um, can degrade our personal relationships. I mean, it's not, it's not like nothing profound, but uh, it's nevertheless a good movie. So yeah. Go on, I like Fast on Avengers list. movies about crazy rich ladies. I haven't seen that one, but those are good too. Yeah. You should watch the yeah. crazy rich lady movies. Yeah. Too. Those are also good. <laughs> And they're still about class, but yeah, yeah. Um, he's he's the he's the OG. He rules. All right. Well, you you heard it from Young Kale Brooks. Uh, go go watch those movies. And uh, thanks again for tuning in. We will see you next week. Bye.